Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I'm delighted to say we're joined again this week by Simon Ellis, who's back from his uh, week off, and so you won't have to listen to me droning all the way through this time. So, Simon, welcome back, and um, let's kick off by just giving a quick overview of what's been happening in the market. Well, it was another down week for the investment companies sector, or certainly it was for the first four days of the week. Uh, the investment company sector down about 1% in that time, and that compares with a small rise for the wider UK market, the FTSE All Share, up 0.1%. In terms of the sector average discount, well, widened out a little bit, probably about 47 to 4.8%. And again, just to remind people, that compares with an average of 3.1% last year. But obviously, the market's attention still very much focused on the horrific events in Ukraine, uh, which have resulted in more sanctions. But aside from that, obviously, this ongoing look at inflation, and in particular, what the Federal Reserve's response is likely to be, lots of discussion about 50 basis point hikes. And that followed uh, very strong US jobs growth, rising wages, data. Uh, but in the UK, this, the whole cost of living crisis thing is, is certainly not going away. Uh, there was a report out this week that UK consumer confidence had hit the lowest level since the start of the first lockdown, so March 2020. Yeah, so that's a rather uh, gloomy sort of backlog to the first week of the new quarter of the year. To me, the most significant event of the week was probably the, the continued rise in the uh, bond yields, particularly the US 10-year Treasury yield has gone up from over the last five days, at least uh, we're recording this on Friday morning, gone up from 2.4 to uh, 2. nearly to 2.7, which is quite a significant move. And uh, it is pretty much now at a level where it's equal to the 30-year bond yield. So what we call the yield curve is definitely flattening. And that could have, uh, well, there could be multiple explanations of that. But uh, there's some combination of, I think, anticipation of the moves that the Federal Reserve and other central banks are going to make in raising interest rates, and also uh, some anxiety that it may also be presaging some significant slowdown in economic activity. We, we know that a inverting yield curve often is a precursor, not always, often is a precursor to some kind of recession at some later date. Uh, so that is a, a generally rather a negative backlog. But the UK market, as you say, is, uh, is actually doing rather better than uh, some other global indices, continuing a trend that we've seen uh, for a little while. So against this backlog, we can move on. Later on, we're going to talk a little bit about fundraising, because that's a, a very topical issue. But we're going to kick off as normal by looking at some corporate activity. And the first item of note this week concerns Edinburgh Investment Trust, ticker EDIN, which I'm sure listeners recall is formally managed by Mark Barnett at Invesco, but uh, changed its manager in 2020 to Majedi Asset Management. Uh, but there's been quite a significant development there, has there not, uh, Simon? Yeah, that's right. Well, we knew that this was coming. It had already been forewarned, so to speak. But this week came the announcement that the AIFM had changed from Majedi Asset Management to Lion Trust Fund Partners. And that followed Lion Trust Asset Management's acquisition of Majedi. What does it mean? Well, not a huge amount in as much as that James Dupper and Chris Field, the portfolio manager, the deputy manager, they remain unchanged. They've moved across from Majedi to Lion Trust or on the back of that acquisition. And so it's kind of business as usual. But I think it is significant uh, because this represents Lion Trust's first investment trust. As we may remember, they tried to launch one 
last year, which uh, didn't get off the ground. That was focused on a global ESG approach. So this represents the first investment trust in their stable. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops. And it's worth noting that you mentioned about the, the new team being appointed a number of years ago. James Dupper and his team have actually performed very well. They've outperformed the FTSE All Share by about 4.5% on an annualised basis in NAV terms, uh, and even better than that in share price terms. Yes, it will be interesting to see what happens. I mean, Loud Trust have been a very successful boutique fund management group, uh, growing quite fast, and uh, they have some excellent managers in their stable, and they have uh, a very effective marketing machine. So it will be interesting to see whether they are you know, will continue to try and expand their investment trust range over the next few years. And for uh, shareholders in Edinburgh Investment Trust, obviously the change in manager has been beneficial and uh, it'll be interesting to see how that one develops as we go forward. Let's move on then, quickly cover a relatively small investment trust we don't talk about very much, but uh, Gulf Investment Fund, ticker GIF. There's a little bit of housekeeping here, I think. Yeah, that's right. So they announced the results of their latest tender offer. That was in theory up to 100%, but they said they'd have to have a minimum side in order to make it viable. In the event, about 5 million shares or so were validly tendered. That represented about 11% of the share capital. In other words, the fund is still uh, large enough to continue. Uh, Interestingly enough, the investment advisor holds 42% of the shares following the tender, but there will be another tender offer in September this year. Okay, well, that's uh, interesting in one sense, which we may come on to as we talk about the next item, which concerns Rockwood Realisation, ticker RKW, which is also developing into a little bit of a saga concerning its future direction. So, uh, Simon, tell us what's happening with Rockwood Realisation, ticker RKW. So this week came the news of a proposal to change the fund's investment strategy. So it's currently focused on realization strategy. It has to the end of next year in theory to realize the portfolio. But uh, the significant development here came about a week or two ago, and I think we discussed it two weeks ago, actually, when the former manager, being Gresham House, sold its stake in the fund, and that was largely uh, picked up by Harwood Capital, the existing manager in Harwood Capital, who now I think own about 29% or so of the fund, approached the board and said they believed that it would be more appropriate to run this on a going concern. Uh, the board have obviously looked at this, and I think they've discussed it with some of the other shareholders as well, and so they've made these proposals. So the idea is that this new strategy will be overseen by the fund's current investment team, so that's led by Richard Staveley and Christopher Mills. The proposal requires shareholder approval, and that will be sought at a general meeting on the 25th of April. But the board said that they believe that the change in policy would allow the fund to take, as they put it, the advantage of inefficiencies in the UK small cap market. And it's uh, certainly the way that this fund has been run in the past. It's uh, quite a focused, quite a concentrated uh, portfolio of UK smaller companies and relatively small UK smaller companies as well, if that makes sense. And certainly Richard Staveley, who was the manager uh, during the latter stages of its time at Gresham House, had developed uh, a strong track record. Uh, unsurprisingly enough as well, the board intends to change the name of the fund to Rockwood Strategic, should shareholder permission be forthcoming. Okay, so what's interesting about this, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty small trust itself, isn't it? It's only got a market cap around, I think, 35 million or so. Uh, but what's interesting here has been the sort of dynamic whereby, as you say, Gresham House had a significant uh, stake as the manager in the trust, and when uh, Harwood had originally tried to take this on, I think, they effectively blocked that. Now they're out of the way. Harwood's coming back with this plan to effectively uh, take on the management of this trust as an ongoing concern rather than uh, letting it run off. 
And so uh, I mean, it's interesting relating back to what we're saying about the Gulf Investment Fund. I noticed that Richard Staveley, who's the fund manager, was saying uh, in an interview this week that he thought it was often problematic when you had the investment managers having a significant stake in the trust that they're managing, because it can create uh, conflicts of interest. Uh, and we saw that last year with things like Gabelli and so on. We've had that issue come up time and time again. So here it's going to be interesting how uh, how we deal with this, because they're going to have a significant stake in this. But I think they're saying that they're going to limit their voting powers to about 10% of the shares, uh, which is uh, an interesting development. But it's still a very small vehicle, small cap specialist. Do you think... Um, this is likely to you know, get some support and uh, be able to carry on? Well, I think the fact that the board have discussed these proposals with some of the largest shareholders already would suggest that there is support there. I mean, obviously, we're going to find out in a few weeks' time. Uh, but you make a good point. I mean, at the moment, uh, in terms of the size, it's about a £36 million market cap. In asset terms, it's probably just north of £40 million. So it is small. And one suspects that Harwood would be keen to get this fund re-rated. Uh, at the moment, it's on about a 12% discount or so, uh, and then get it into a position where they can actually grow the mandate, because at the moment, it feels like it will be too small for many uh, shareholders to uh, to consider investment. Indeed, and that's been an issue we talked about a lot. But obviously, in this case, they think there is an opportunity to do something more positive here. And of course, the other factor here is that the manager, Richard Stavely, we, who, we, who I just mentioned, I mean, he was managing this fund in its former guise, I think I've got that right. And then he resigned to join forces with uh, Harwood. And now he has a chance at least to be back in charge of this portfolio. And uh, he's quite highly rated as a manager. Is he? Is, would that be fair to say? Well, I think he developed a good track record when it when this fund, it was used to be uh, Grisham House Strategic. And I think he was developing a good track record uh, during his time. So let's move on now and talk about fundraising. We've got uh, three announcements to cover this week. But before we do that, Simon, perhaps as you've been noting in your uh, latest monthly report, you might just give us a bit of background in terms of what the first quarter has been like in terms of fundraising uh, compared to recent experience. Yeah, and I think the word is quiet or certainly quieter. So to put some numbers around it, about £1.8 billion was raised in the first three months of the year across the sector. Now, that compared with about £4.1 billion in the same period in 2021. So that's a decline of 56%. And in fact, the quarter just gone has been the weakest quarter for fundraising since the third quarter of 2020. So in that kind of early stages of the pandemic. I think another interesting thing to note is that so far this year, we have not seen a new fund launch. There hasn't been an IPO, a successful IPO. And again, that's the first time since 2016 that the investment company sector has not seen an IPO in the first three months of a calendar year. And if people might remember 2016 or certainly that first quarter, that was in the run up to the EU referendum where it became very difficult to, to get new funds away. So that, I think, just tells us that when markets are turbulent, there's more volatility around. It's very difficult in general for investment companies to, to raise new money. Uh, but in terms of the money that was raised in this uh, secondary issuance, at least, um, where did most of it uh, go to? Yeah. So again, in the first quarter of the year, infrastructure, perhaps unsurprisingly, has dominated about 41% of all the money that's been raised in that subsector. Um, we've seen a bit of money going to some of the more specialist property funds as well. That probably represents about 19% of all the money's raised. But actually, some normal kind of equity and some global UK names uh, are doing quite well and names that people be very familiar with. So if you kind of go down the list, Ruffer Investment Companies raised over £100 million so far this year. Smithson, not too far behind, about £93 million. Capital Gearing Trust, £81 million. 
uh, personal assets, 43 million, and I could go on. So there have been a number of investment trust companies able to kind of consistently tap out their shares. They trade on premium ratings, and that's enabled regular issuance. Okay, so let's now then talk about the latest fundraising news, and we'll kick off with uh, Supermarket Income REIT, ticker SUPR, which does pretty much what it says on the tin. It uh, essentially uh, leases supermarket sites to supermarkets. And uh, tell us now, though, what, uh, what are they proposing to do? So they announced that they're looking to raise £175 million, which actually they can increase that number. So I think the most that they can go up to, they can issue over £470 million. That's what they have power to do, and that would represent about £570 million. But certainly the target is £175 million. Those new shares will be issued at a price of 121p, and that represents a 4% discount to the closing price just ahead of the uh, announcement and a 7% premium to their latest EPRA NTA or NAV. So the idea, what are they trying to do here? Well, they've got a £270 million pipeline, of which £150 million is under exclusivity, and so they're looking to fund that. It's also worth noting that the placing closes on the 26th of April. Supermarket Income REIT has been uh, one of the most successful launches in recent years, I'd say, in this particular space. And certainly it's been the most highly rated of the specialist property trusts uh, for some time. Remind us perhaps of why it's been so popular and uh, what kind of yield is on now that it uh, has been trading at a significant double-digit premium. Yeah, so just to cover off the the premium, it's probably on about a 12% premium at the moment. Uh, and its yield on a historic basis comes in about 4.8%, so not too far off 5%. But you're right, it has been very popular. It's managed to raise quite substantial sums of capital, and its market cap probably about 1.2 billion or so uh, as we speak. But I think in general, people have been very interested in more specialist property plays, and clearly, as the name would suggest, this is a very specialised uh, property play. And I think there was a, a you know a good story in terms of inflation-linked dividends and the fact that obviously they're being managed to build out the portfolio by acquiring uh, existing operating uh, supermarkets on pretty long-term leases. So that's certainly attractive, uh, or it would appear to be attractive. The inflation linking in particular is attractive in the current environment. Let's talk next about uh, Hydrogen One, also another specialist investment trust, which didn't come to the market that long ago. Uh, and they're coming back looking for some more money as well on the back of some reasonable results. That's right. So they've announced a placing by way of an accelerated book build, and they're looking to issue 21.5 million new shares at an issue price of 100p. In other words, they're looking to raise 21.5 million pounds. Uh, And the idea here is that the net proceeds alongside 34 million of cash already on the balance sheet will be used to acquire a 45 million pound pipeline. And that's under exclusivity as part of a wider £500 million pipeline of 20 private assets. So that issue actually closed uh, at the end of the week, and they duly managed to raise that money. Okay, and so uh, tell us about how this one has been rated, and it's only been in the market a short time, but it does uh, seem to have caught the zeitgeist a little bit. Yes, that's right. So it is a relatively recent launch, as you mentioned. It's trading, I've got it on about a 7% uh, premium or so at the moment. I've got it on my screen about 104.4p, so just north of that placing price, and the NAV somewhere around about 95p. And uh, they've also produced some annual results, so perhaps you could just fill us in on those as well while we're at it. That's right. So they had annual results out for the period, 
from the 6th of April to the 31st of December last year. So the NEV was actually down slightly. It was down about 2% in that time. And that reflected the performance of some of the listed assets over the period. So the share price return in that same period to the end of December was actually up 19.5%. So at the end of last year, they deployed about 46% of the £105 million net proceeds that was raised through the IPO. And some of those investments included three private hydrogen assets, and they, they, that came in about £39 million or so. But they'd also invested about £9.5 million in a portfolio of 19 listed hydrogen stocks. So they're still in the process of building out their portfolio. Obviously, that fundraising that we just talked about is very much part and parcel of that. But at the end of 2021, they had about £55 million or so of cash on the balance sheet. So essentially, the fact that they're trading at a premium means that uh, you know some shareholders are anticipating that uh, that cash will be deployed quite soon and that this will continue to produce some results. Um, but having a portfolio of listed hydrogen stocks in there does make it slightly different from some of the other specialist trusts we've been talking about in the sense that the value of those are going to be affected by general market movements as well. It's not just going to be you know, the underlying assets that they're investing directly. Uh, so you might expect this one to be a little bit more volatile as a result of that? Yeah, I think that's a fair comment. But I suspect the idea is that there is going to be more of a focus on the private side. So in times as this portfolio ramps up, the percentage actually in listed assets will be relatively modest compared with the rest of the portfolio. Okay, and then uh, finally, in this particular section, we learnt uh, this morning, this is on Friday, as I say, we're recording this, that uh, International Public Partnerships is proposing to raise more money. This is one of the bigger animals in the infrastructure space. That's ticker INPP. What can you tell us about that, Simon? Yep, so they're looking to raise £250 million by way of a placing open offer, offer for subscription and intermediaries offer. Uh, and that will be at an issue price of 159 spot five pence per share. So why are they looking to do this? Well, the proceeds will be raised uh, to pay down the cash drawn on their credit facility, their debt facility, um, which stands at about 156 million pounds uh, as at the 6th of April. And in addition to that, they will pursue some opportunities in their investment pipeline, uh, which tends to be quite extensive. So they've been very good over the years at rolling out new projects, new investments. Uh, and so this is very much part of that. And in terms of the yield that you get on this one, historically, uh, what has that been? And how does that compare to some of the others in the infrastructure space? So we kind of classify this one as a, a social infrastructure. And certainly the yield on a historic basis comes in about 4.4% at the moment. So we put it alongside BBGI Global Infrastructure and Hickel Infrastructure. They're both well-established infrastructure plays. BBGI has a yield of about 4.2%, whereas Hickel's coming in about 4.6% at the moment. Okay, so still reasonably attractive. They're obviously in a higher inflation world. Uh, they also have some benefit from the long-life projects uh, in terms of inflation linking in some cases. Let's move on then and talk about some results now. That's uh, the fundraising picture this week. And let's kick off with uh, Dunedin Income Growth, ticker DIG. Not to be confused with the other trust called Diggs that has now disappeared. What have they had to say? Yep, these were annual results to the 31st of January this year. In that time, they generated an NAV total return of 8.1%, and that compared to a rise of 18.9% for the FTSE All Share. So there was an underperformance. In share price terms, not quite as bad in as much as they were up 12.5%. So uh, they saw a positive re rating in the period. 
But uh, they made the point that the majority of the underperformance came in the second half of the year. And that was very much, uh, we saw a market change, a market rotation during that time. And value stocks were favoured in sectors such as commodities and banks. And that's not where daily income growth is invested at the moment. But in better news, and it's worth noting that Dunedin income growth sits in the UK equity income subsector, uh, so the yield is important. And a better story here, the dividends totaled 12.9p in the year, that was up 0.8%, while revenue came in at 12.87p, and that was up from 10.9p. In other words, they saw quite a significant increase in their revenue. And in fact, they made the point that it's back above the pre-pandemic level. So obviously, a lot of UK equity income funds got hit in terms of revenue received in, in 2020 as the underlying dividends were cut. But invariably, most, including Dunedin Income Growth, decided to sustain their own dividends by using revenue reserves. So they are slightly uncovered, but a big, big pickup in the revenue. It's worth noting that the revenue reserves represented about 70% of the annual dividend. In other words, quite a healthy level. Okay, so we haven't talked about the equity income sector for a while, but uh, in terms of how that sector's been uh, rated and, and the kind of yields you're getting there. Uh, where does Dunedin income growth sit in that kind of spectrum at the moment? Yeah, so they're sitting on a premium. And it's worth noting that they changed their policy. Um, basically, they kind of decided to reduce their dependence on what well, they term to be high yielding, lower growth companies uh, and really go for some of the faster dividend growth and in their opinion, better capital performance and there's a, a kind of enhanced ESG angle to that as well. So they were re-rated on the back of that. They are sitting on a premium of about 1% or 2% or so at the moment. And that's certainly a higher rating than you'll see across the wider UK equity income peer group. So that's probably sitting on about a 2% to discount at the moment. But we see a bit of variation in that. But Dunedin income growth, that's yielding about 4.3% at the moment. Well, we might talk then next about uh, Merchants Investment Trust. That's ticker MRCH which is also in the same sector. And they've also had annual results for the year to the 31st of January, so the same period. What was their performance like? So, yeah, strong set of results, actually. Their NAV total return came in at 35.7%. And again, the FTSE All Share up 18.9% in that time. So a significant outperformance. Also, good story in terms of the revenue per share as well. So the revenue earnings were up 38%. So it's this idea that these funds exposed to UK companies are really benefited from the pickup in dividends. And they've paid out a total dividend. This is Merchants now, 27.3p. And that was up on the previous year and actually represented the 40th consecutive annual increase. So a strong story in terms of results and a strong story in terms of the dividend. Yes, that one has done particularly well this year. I've been seeing to compare when some of the others also produce results, so they don't always have the same year end, of course, do they? Okay, let's next talk about Mercantile Investment Trust, ticker MRC. Also had results for the same period. That's right. Um, their NAV total return came at 15.3%, and that compared with a rise of 13.4% for their benchmark, which is basically the FTSE All Share, excluding the FTSE 100 companies. So in other words, they're looking to invest in the mid and small cap area. So in share price terms, not quite as good, actually. They came in at 8.3%, and that was a function of the fact their discount widened. Probably started the year about 4%, and it was nearer to about 10% by the end of the year. Again, they're not a UK equity income fund. We've got them in the mid cap space, but they do pay a dividend. And in fact, their revenue per share was up 59%. Uh, so not the dividend, but the underlying revenue per share 
up 59% in the period, but that meant that they could pay a dividend of 6.9p, and that was up 3% year on year. But it's very much about the stock selection here, Guy Anderson and Anthony Lynch of JP Morgan, experienced investment team, and so names that worked for them in the year. It was companies such as Watches of Switzerland, Future, Morgan Sindel, detractors including Boohoo and Games Workshop. But uh, some interesting commentary from the managers in terms of their outlook for the UK market at the moment, or certainly the mid and small cap area. And in fact, they made the point that uh, they've got gearing about 11% or so at the moment. And that reflects their broadly positive views, and particularly given valuation levels at the moment. They think that the underlying valuations are quite compelling. Yes, that's a story we've heard from a number of small cap managers. Obviously, their discounts, generally in the small cap sector, has been pretty wide, but uh, This one is classified by uh, the AIC, at least in the all-companies sector, as you say. So do you think it's just the discount uh, reflects the same factors that have been driving down smaller company UK trust as well? Yeah, I think that's right. I think we've seen mid and small cap investment trusts derated this year, and I think we can understand the reasons why. I mean, you mentioned earlier that the UK market has actually performed well. Well, that's certainly true for the FTSE 100, but if you look at the mid cap, it's actually quite a way behind the FTSE 100, obviously not benefiting from those big oil companies, for instance. So it has been a more difficult year. And then that goes back to Guy Anderson and Auntie Lynch's comments about valuation levels. They think that they believe that that's where the opportunity is. And both these uh, trust merchants and Mercantile both got uh, gearing in place, you know, 10% or so. So that will obviously uh, accentuate things if the market falls, but help on, on the upside. These trusts are these ones that have kind of structural gearing. They're always kind of relatively quite highly geared, like... Uh, some others, Henderson opportunities and so on, or is it uh, something they can uh, vary and move around? That's a good question. I mean, certainly in my experience, Merchants Trust, the gearing on that one was about 13% at the end of January. And invariably, it's been one of the more highly geared uh, investment trusts in the UK equity income space. And obviously, that helped in terms of their, their dividend record. I think with Mercantile, you know, gearing can be uh, dynamic. It's certainly not the case that it will be geared all of the time, and it will be a reflection of the opportunities that the the managers are seeing. So let's now talk about some overseas trusts. And we're going to kick off with Bailey Gifford China Growth, uh, ticker BGCG, one of the three large China investment trusts, which have taken a bit of a pounding in recent times. And these are also annual results for the year to the 31st of January. And I suspect there's probably some, uh, some red ink in there, or in terms of performance at least. Yeah, no, it's been a tough year. So NAV total return down 27%. That compares with a fall of 20.5% for the MSCI China All Shares Index. In share price terms, it's even uh, tougher, actually, down 37.1%. And that was a reflection of the fact that the shares moved from an 11% premium to a 4% discount. So obviously, there's quite a lot has gone on in China over the last year. And actually, if you look down uh, the list of what's worked for Better Give China Growth, it gives you some insight. Their only private holding, a company called ByteDance, that actually was one of the positive contributors and other companies there were Ling Ning and CATL. But some of their healthcare holdings, they hurt performance as that sector sold off in response to increased regulatory scrutiny. But what they've done is they've looked to increase their exposure to um, what they call China's green revolution and reduce exposure to those stocks negatively impacted by a change in the regulatory backdrop. So they certainly got hit on a few of those, but they're looking to reposition the portfolio. Yes, indeed. I mean, this is really has been a roller coaster ride for shareholders in this one. I think it went to that extraordinary peak in uh, 2021. 
And I think it got to some point, it got up to about a 25% uh, premium or, or so. And now it's back, as you say, trading at a discount, reflecting the fact that the shares have fallen, well, quite a long way, it has to be said, uh, over the period. Can you uh, help us in describing how far those shares have fallen from their peak? Uh, in terms of the premium rating, I, I think you're right. I think that it certainly kind of got up to 20, 30%. That was over a year ago. I think there was a squeeze in terms of the amount of shares that could be issued. They had to wait for a renewal. And I think during that period, it did get pushed up to quite an extended premium. I mean, over the last 12 months, I can tell you that broadly, their average rating has been around about NAV. But within that time, they've been as high as a 9% premium and as uh, low as an 11% discount. I've got them on about a 5% discount at the moment. And at the moment, just to quickly remind us how that compares with the other uh, players in this sector, which have all been affected in the same way, but uh, is this one still more highly rated than the others or less highly rated? Yeah, they're all on discounts at the moment. So um, Aberdeen China, probably about a 9% discount. Uh, Fidelity China, 7%, and probably broadly the same for JP Morgan China Growth and Income. So yes, they've all suffered a derating, with the exception actually of Aberdeen China, which you remember that changed its mandate. And so that's actually crept in a little bit, but certainly the other three have been derated. But as yet, no sign of a particular turnaround in sentiment. And people have been writing about these China trusts and saying that maybe, uh, you know, there'll be a turning point quite soon. But I guess the latest news about the lockdowns that China's imposing in order to deal with the latest coronavirus strain, uh, that won't have helped. So uh, I don't think there's been much sign of a, of a turnaround yet in sentiment here. No, I think that's right. I mean, the ratings tell you that. And, and you look at the performance certainly year to date, they're all in negative territory at the moment in share price terms. OK, so let's now talk about JP Morgan American, uh, ticker JAM, J-A-M. They've had some annual results this time to the uh, end of 31st of December last year and a rather different picture, I'd say. Yeah, so they were in positive territory. The NAV total return came in at 28.1%. That was just slightly behind the S&P 500 index. That came in at 29.6%. Uh, but actually, in share price terms, they outperformed up 34.3%. So just to remind people, it's, a, it's an interesting mandate, this one. Effectively, there's a large cap portfolio of 40 stocks, of which 20 are run on a value basis and 20 on a growth basis. There are two managers in, involved, both based in New York, Jonathan Simon and Tim Parton. And that large cap portfolio, that represents about 96%, uh, in addition to which there's a US small cap portfolio as well. But the idea between having this kind of hybrid growth and value, kind of 20 best ideas in each bucket, is that you take out the style bias. So whereas there are other US funds that will have a uh, implicit value bias, or more often these days, a more obvious growth element to what they do, uh, and they've tended to enjoy the good times but maybe give some of that performance back. This one's meant to be a kind of all-weather type approach. And so it has performed since they've adopted this approach. It's also worth noting that the gearing was about 5% or so at the end of 2021. And that was a, a positive contributor to performance as well. So good news from them. Uh, let's talk next about another JP Morgan Trust. And this is uh, JP Morgan Global Emerging Markets Income, ticker J-E-M-I. And this is uh, interim results. That's right. Interim results for the six months to the end of January. Um, the NAV total return came in at 6.2%, so a positive return in that period. And that compared with a decline of 1.1% for the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. Uh, and share price terms, not quite as good, actually. That came in at 2.1%, so positive. Uh, and that was a reflection of the fact that discount widened from about 7% to 10%. But outperformance or NAV outperformance was very much a result of stock selection, particularly in China as well as asset allocation as well. So some of the portfolio stocks in the information technology sector performed particularly well. 
whereas, uh, funnily enough, their largest detractor was a Russian stock, Moscow Exchange. And actually, they gave some commentary around Russia, unsurprisingly, and their exposure to Russia had been reduced down in February. And I think that was in advance of the invasion of Ukraine. And as at the 4th of April, their exposure to Russia, I think it was just now into three Russian companies that represented less than 0.01% of the portfolio. So very de minimis. At least now very de minimis. We don't know whether, of course, that was, uh, it could have been worth a bit more than that before, before that happened. So perhaps you can uh, tell us also, uh, Simon, JP Morgan also runs an Emerging Markets uh, Trust, which has uh, obviously got a different mandate to JP Morgan Global Emerging Markets Income. I wonder which of those two uh, are most favoured by investors at the moment, at least to the extent we can measure that by the rating and uh, obviously the performance is, is also relevant. Yeah, so uh, I think you're referring to the JP Morgan Emerging Markets Fund, which is the larger of the two. That's got a market cap of about $1.3 billion. That's trading around about 9-10% discount at the moment. And obviously, the dividend, the yield is very much of secondary. So it's about 1.2% yield at present. The JP Morgan Global Emerging Markets Income Fund, that's on about a 13% discount at the moment. It's got a market cap of over $390 million, and that's got a yield of about 3.9%. Okay, next, let's talk about the North American Income Trust, ticker NAIT, which has produced an annual report for the year to the 31st of January. So not quite the same period as uh, JP Morgan American, but uh, obviously a different kind of approach. How did they do last year? So they had annual results up to the 31st of January 2022. Their NAV total return came at 25.7%. And that was just slightly behind their reference benchmarks. That was up 26.3%. In share price terms, uh, they were up 25.6% as the discount widened slightly. But the dividend is an important part of the story. And their revenue return per share came in at 10.3p. That was slightly down on the previous year, actually, which was 118 and the revenue decline was due to reduced option income and also some foreign exchange movements as well. Uh, it's interesting, though, that 84% of their portfolio companies actually raised their dividends. Uh, well, next up, we have results from Schroeder Asian Total Return, ticker ATR, and they produced their results for the year to the 31st of December. That's right. Their NAV total return was up 7.4% in that period, and that compared with a decline of 2% for their reference benchmark, although their peer group was up 6.8%. In share price terms, that came in at 4.9%. So Robin Parbrook and King Fu Lee, a very experienced investment team, and they take very much a kind of absolute return investment approach to their stock selection. China is no longer the largest weighting in the portfolio, in country terms at least, and that was reduced to underweight compared with the reference benchmark in the first half of the year. And instead, they've favoured technology stocks in India and Taiwan, and that's what drove the outperformance in the period. This fund faces a triennial continuation vote at its AGM on the 11th of May. Now then, we're going to turn to uh, specialist investment trusts, and we're going to kick off with uh, Gresham House Energy Storage Fund, ticker GRID, which is another of these funds that's been very popular with shareholders, seems to have caught the imagination for reasons I think are not difficult to see. Uh, Energy storage clearly has to be part of the answer both to uh, any move on climate change and also has obvious attractions in the light of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the consequent 
issue about the need to find alternative sources of energy and uh, indeed to remove the vulnerability to interruptions of supply, which uh, obviously is what energy storage is all about. So this is uh, ticker GRID and uh, they've had annual results to the 31st of December. Yeah, and a strong set of results as well, actually. So they generated an NAV total return of 20% in that time. The dividend is obviously part of that story. They paid a dividend of 7p, a total dividend, and that had operational dividend cover of 1.32 times. So in other words, it was well covered. The portfolio is generating quite significant amounts of revenue. So I think the underlying operational portfolio revenues was up 170% in the period to 54 million. I mean, that will reflect the fact that portfolio has been built out during the year. And the NEV terms as well, it's worth noting that it would appear that this fund is trading on quite a significant premium. So at the moment, I've got it on about a 38% premium at the moment. But it's worth noting, and the investment team have made it clear, that the NAV per share is expected to cre- increase to at least 124p by the 31st of March 2022. So in other words, the week or so just gone and it'd be in the range of 140 to 145p by the end of June on the back of a number of revaluations. They've given some guidance. This is quite unusual, actually. They've given some guidance on their kind of forthcoming NAV, but that would be one of the reasons why it would appear at least to be trading on a significant premium at the moment. Indeed. So if they're right, and you're going to get to 140, 145p by the 30th of June, uh, and the current share price is around 154p, I think, something like that, 150p plus, uh, so the actual implied discount, if you take this prediction into account, is is nothing like as large as it would appear, as you say. Now, there is another energy storage trust out there, Gore Street Energy Storage. Uh, how do these two now compare? Gresham House Energy Storage is uh, a little larger, I think. But uh, tell us about those two in comparison, if you may. Yeah, that's right. So Gore Street Energy Storage has a market cap of about $390 million or so at the moment. That compares with 674 million for Gresham House Energy Storage. In yield terms, well, Gold Street's coming in about 7.1%, while Gresham House finds itself with a historic dividend yield of 4.6%. Uh, in terms of the premiums, both are on premiums. Um, as mentioned, Gresham House on quite an extended premium at the moment, though that might not be the case given the expected movement in its NAV. But Gold Street Energy Storage finds itself on an 11% premium. I guess even I can probably do these sums that if the NAV does reach 140p and they're paying a 7p dividend, I think I can work out that that is about a 5% yield. Would that be right? <laughs> Prospectively. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you a gold star for your mouse. Yeah, yeah I agree. Nice, on. nice, easy one for once. Okay, so moving on, let's talk about uh, impacts environmental markets, ticker IEM. Also produced annual results and also a trust that is, uh, you could argue, in a sweet spot, in the right place at the right time, given uh, all the things that are going on in the world. Yeah, that's right. So annual results for the year to the end of December. NAV total return up 21.3%. And that compared to a rise of 13.1% uh, for the FTSE ET100 index. And the MSCI All Country World Index is up 19.6%. So Whichever way you cut it, they did well. They outperformed in share price terms even better, actually up 30.1% as their premium increased during that period. Um, In fact, they've been able to issue shares on a regular basis. Actually, we're talking about those investment companies that trade on premium ratings and look to tap shares out. Well, they raised over 150 
million pounds through new issuance in 2021. So what drove the performance? Well, there's a whole range of stuff, actually. Um, energy efficiency, software, digital infrastructure, food, agriculture and forestry, all the different themes within the portfolio did particularly well. The Possibly the only exception was renewable energy. That represented a headwind. But the managers currently find valuations more attractive there and have been adding selectively to existing holdings. It's also worth mentioning as well on the manager side, John Foster and Bruce Jenkins-Jones have been responsible for this one forever, I think. I think they were the the original team at launch. And a co-manager, a co-portfolio manager has been appointed alongside them. Uh, And I'm going to make an attempt at the pronunciation of the name Fotis Chaz Simi Chaleskis. That was appalling, but you might be able to do that a bit better than I can. Well, we might nominate him as a potentially the uh, portfolio manager with the longest surname. I think it's uh, an interesting question, a trivial question, I guess. Uh, I've got him coming in at about 16 letters, which is uh, which is a lot. Anyway, I look forward to talking to him and getting to know him. It will be uh, good news for the trust, obviously, and he's been appointed. And then just, just a reminder, so this trust sits in the environmental sector, according to the AIC, and it is uh, a surprisingly small sector, you might think, given all the drive towards uh, ESG. But uh, is that where you have it classified as well? We do. We agree with the AIC Stats Committee on this particular occasion. But no, we have it in the uh, environmental alternative energy subsector as well. Uh, as you say, there are only three investment trusts. So Impacts Environmental is the largest on a 2% premium, 1.4 billion market cap. Uh, and after that, you've got Jupiter Green uh, Investment Trust, market cap about £47 million, pounds, uh, an 11% discount. And then Manhattan Resource Efficiency, with about an £86 million pound market cap and trading on a 28% discount to NAV. So would it be uh, fair to say that it could possibly be classified somewhere? Manhattan Resources Efficiency, wouldn't it? You know, why is that in the environmental space rather than in the uh, renewable energy kind of area where there's another efficiency trust, I believe, there? Gosh, I mean, that's a question you'd have to put to the stats committee. These are the wonders of the <laughs> uh, investment trust classification. Yeah, well, yeah. very fine body of people, uh, the AIC's stats committee, of which you are a, a distinguished member. Okay, so that brings us to the end uh, this week. If you are a subscriber to the Moneymakers Circle, we don't have a profile this week, exceptionally, as uh, my colleague Stuart has been away, but we do have a fascinating Q&A and also some notes on the market performance in Q1 and the usual regular features. So that's it for this week. We will be back again next week where we hope to see what changes there have been, if any, in the next few days and uh, whether or not this uh, market environment uh, uh, stabilizes or possibly deteriorates, as some people fear it might. So thank you, Simon. We'll look forward to uh, speaking to you next week. Thank you very much. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.